Well, good morning. Goodbye, high schoolers. It was nice having you here. Everyone wave to the high schoolers. Bye. We'll miss your bright, shiny faces. Well, this morning we're continuing our series in passages. Uh, I have heard so many great things from you as we've been going through these series and hearing from the different people in our community. I know that I've talked to people, and as someone has come up and spoke, they've been moved in thinking about the passages of Scripture that have ministered to them as well. And they are thinking, oh, I remember when I read this passage and how much it impacted my life, and that remembering is even causing a, a hunger and many of us to, to read the Scriptures and be more devoted to them so that we can hear again from God. And what's been exciting is we've had so many different people come up and speak how God has spoken to them through the Scripture. And I think of the Scriptures themselves and how we have so many voices in the Scripture from so many people, from, you know, shepherds that turn into kings like David, from queens who are basically enslaved but then redeem their people like Esther. So many voices that speak to us from men and women in the Scripture that give us insight and understanding of how God is working among, amongst them. And the same thing is happening with us today. And so we're going to be hearing from Denise first. She's going to be sharing with us how the Lord has ministered to her through the Scripture. And so I know she's nervous. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Too late. Let's welcome Denise as she comes up to share us. Well, the first thing that I was nervous about was getting up here without tripping. So check that was taken care of. Um, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we are your people and that not a dotted I or a cross T is wasted in your word. We pray now, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, and that we would hear your voice clearly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I distinctly remember when I was first introduced to this passage in Second Kings. It was a number of years ago. It feels like about a million years ago to me. But um, the stage was... A group of women had been asked to teach on women of the Bible. And I don't remember why, but for some reason, by the time I was able to select the woman I was going to teach on, all the big names were gone. And the only big name left was Eve. And there was no way I was going to teach on the woman who led the entire human race into sin. So I started searching and found this Shunammite woman who doesn't even have a name. And I thought, great, I'm going to teach on this nobody in the Bible, and somehow I've got to get something out of that. Now, it was perfect timing for God, as things in our life always are, because this Shunammite in this passage came to me at a time when I was coming to terms with my own ordinariness. Um, I was realizing that novel I thought I was going to write was probably never going to get written. I was coming to terms with I was a place in my career, and I wasn't going to go any further than where I was. Um, I knew I wasn't going to be another Beth Moore, and I recognized that things in my marriage 
were not the way I had imagined they were going to be. And my daughter was an adolescent. Need I say more about that? Okay. So here I was going to speak about the Shunanite woman. Doesn't even have a name in scripture. She wasn't strikingly beautiful like Sarah or Bathsheba or Esther. And she didn't save her people like Esther did. She wasn't a great leader like Deborah. She didn't even get to have a child who was great like Hannah or part of the lineage like Ruth. And she certainly wasn't highly regarded as all of the Marys were. In all honesty, when I read this passage for the first time, I thought of the Shunammite woman as little more than a supporting actress for Elisha's miracles. But this common, nameless, and dare I say aloud, ordinary woman was the very thing who was to inspire me from that day forward to this day now, and she continues to inspire me. I knew when I sat down to study um, this passage, 2 Timothy 3.16, which Sam has referenced throughout this series, I knew that in all of God's scripture there were four things there for me to learn about doctrine, about the things I was doing wrong or reproof, about correction, which is what God wanted me to do right, and how to become more Christ-like in my everyday life. So I sat down prayerfully asking God to show me, but I confess to you, I sat down thinking there probably wasn't a whole lot I was going to learn from this verse. I was wrong. The story of the Shunammite woman begins in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8 goes all the way through verse 37. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. And in those verses, I learned the beauty of being ordinary and living an ordinary life. Reading from the NIV begins with chap um, verse 8. It says, One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Now we're going to stop there. It's interesting to me that the authors of the NIV version chose the word well-to-do to describe this woman. The King James uses the word great, and the New King James uses the word notable. Now, with all those different words, I thought, okay, we got to get to the bottom of this. So I took out my concordance, and all of those words comes from the Hebrew word gadal, which literally means to be or to make large. Now, this can be large in body, large in mind, large in estate, large in honor, and unfortunately, it can also be large in pride. And when I sat down to read this passage, I think it was large in all of those things, but especially in pride. To think I could sit down and read God's word and not get something from it, or that I already knew everything there was to be taught, was nothing but pride. When we read on, we begin to see that this woman, and I'm going to use the word gadol, because scripture isn't clear to us what she was gadol about. But I think as we read, we see attributes of this woman that are large. And I'll leave it to you and to God what he speaks to you from that. What I learned is that this nameless woman was a woman of gadal discernment. She is the one credited with discerning 
that Elisha was a holy man of God. I imagine that she had heard him speak on several occasions and perhaps heard of his other miracles and actions. We generally don't invite people into our homes that are not going to be good company, and so I assume she knew or she had a good dull understanding and recognition that this man had something to offer her and her family, and it was about the things of God. I learned from this passage, and what God spoke to me in this passage, was the importance of good company and the greater importance of seeking after that good company. Proverbs tells us that we become like the company we keep, and God was reminding me through this passage that the company I keep is not an act of chance, or at least it shouldn't be, but rather it should be a deliberate choice on my part. I felt reproof one of those four things from Second Timothy, from God, and he was telling me, Denise, you are not striving to keep good company. You're leaving it to chance. If these people invite you, you'll go there. If these people happen to be hanging out, you'll go there. You are not seeking good company. And that it was, in fact, my responsibility to earnestly and actively seek the company of other righteous believers and not to forsake the righteousness and the assembly thereof. There is no indication for this woman that her husband was a church leader or a great teacher or even much involved in the ministry of Elisha. I wondered myself at that time if her husband was even a believer. Did he attend the services or the fellowship or whatever they were or whatever you called them when Elisha came to town? We don't know, and at this time in my life, this brought encouragement to me. I began to understand that God's purpose and plans for me in that season of my life were consistent. And though he was well aware of my circumstances, his calling for me and my life was not to be dependent upon my circumstances. My circumstances did not negate what he was calling me to do. In fact, God spoke to me and and showed me it was those very circumstances that I was struggling with that were working together for my good. I didn't get it. It was difficult. They certainly weren't easy, but those were the circumstances that were refining me and conforming me into his image. I certainly didn't enjoy those circumstances, but God knew what he was doing as he worked in my life. This came to me at a time when I was not having one of my mountaintop experiences in life, quite the opposite. Dennis and I were not in sync in our um, service to God. There were times when I felt like we were traveling on parallel universes, and they were difficult times. Nowadays, I'm blessed that Dennis and I are in sync, and our involvement and service, we support one another. He is my support and my rock when I leave to go to Haiti, and I am his support, and not his rock, but I'm his prayer support when he goes to Vizcaino. And it is a blessing to know that through those years, God was able to take that and change it. So my devotion to God, and I would venture to say your devotion to God, should not and ought not be dependent upon your circumstances, but rather Through prayerful discernment, God will share with you what you and your calling ought to be. 
I changed and stopped putting pressure on Dennis and my daughter to conform into my image of a husband and a daughter and began instead to pray for myself to be conformed into the image of Christ's likeness. I became less angry and resentful and I became more focused on what I could do rather than what I could not do as a result of my circumstances. It was a turning point in my personal life and I believe in our marriage. I was greatly blessed to understand that this nameless, ordinary woman was gadal in her discernment. And I was beginning to think that perhaps this woman might be a person of interest after all. The next thing I discovered about this woman was that she was alert to the needs of those who ministered to her. I was fascinated and I confess to you a little annoyed that this woman was not even given a name, but that the Holy Spirit took the time to list the things that she gave to Elisha. It says in verse 10 that she turns to her husband and says, let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay here whenever he comes to the town of Shunem. Clearly this woman was not all about herself, her needs, or even the needs of her family. She recognized the needs of this man of God from whom she is receiving teaching, encouragement, and her spiritual ed education. When she recognized the need that she was able to meet, she sought support from her husband and then went about taking care of business. For me, this was liberating and it gave me an entirely different perspective on life. I began to pray earnestly that God would make me aware of the needs of those who blessed me. May they be my pastor, my prayer partner, my mentors, or my friends. I wanted to recognize which needs I was called upon to meet. And I learned that as lovely as that phrase, random acts of kindness sounds, God made it clear to me that my first responsibility outside of my family was provision for those who ministered to me. There was to be nothing random about it. It was part of my reasonable service to God, something I believe we are all called to and something that takes many forms. For this woman, it meant provision for Elisha's rest, for his study and preparation, for his privacy, and for his meals. I believe that this is why the list of her provisions is given to us and not her name. And that was the correction that God gave to me. She did this with the support of her husband. She did this with discernment and wisdom. And I needed to do the same. We are to be remembered like the Shunammite woman for what we do and not for our names and who we are. And if we can do that, then we have done it well. This ordinary woman discerned that Elisha was a man of God and she was edified by his ministry and in response she desired to bless him and was alert to his needs. If we are blessed by a ministry, then our appropriate response is to support that ministry and especially the people that serve. And this ministry, this passage, sorry, taught me about someone who is also wise. 
She was wise enough to realize that in providing a place for this holy man of God, her family was going to reap the benefits of his presence. We cannot spend time with people of God and not be strengthened and encouraged ourselves. That this was her only desire is evident in verses 11 through 14. At this time, it says, One day, when Elijah came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and she stood before him. Elijah said to him, Tell her, You have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can we do for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she replied, I have a home among my own people. Now, what this really means is she said she was content. She was okay. She was childless. She was in a marriage that maybe they were traveling on parallel universes. We don't know. Um, she was content with that because she knew that her God was in the midst of it. And she didn't ask for anything in return for her service to this man of God. She tells Elijah that she's content in her present state. She's content learning about the things of God, and this was enough for her. We don't know for sure her status of life or her estate. We actually know very little about her circumstances. But we do know that she was content with the opportunity to fellowship with a believer and this great man of God and to learn from his teaching. I think she was smart in this. I think she knew that if this man of God would have dinner in her house, he didn't have to have a Bible study, but over the dinner conversation, the things of God would be spoken of and her household would hear of those things. She knew that there would be sort of a domino effect throughout her household as this man of God came into her home and his behavior and conduct and I believe she was hopeful in that. I want to share with you something um, that will probably embarrass Sam, but I'll do it anyway since he embarrassed me. <laughs> Our pastor is like that. When I initially began going to Haiti, I traveled with a group of people who are incredibly well-educated. All of them have PhDs, I don't, but all of the people I traveled with have PhDs. And all of them are, I mean, one of them is a, um, a professor at Harvard University. I mean, these are big time educated people. But our pastor was the man of God on that trip. It was, it, it's the neatest thing, and I wish you could all see what it's like to have a group of people in my home for dinner, and they all have PhDs, and I'm sitting at one end of the table, and I know Sam's at the other end of the table, and I'm hearing what he's talking about. He is talking about the things of God, and that's what a person of God does. Whether we were on the airplane or in the airport, he was the man of God. At one point on our trip, he went off with all these big wigs, and um, they traveled up a hill, way, way far up a hill into this remote area. And when they came back, they were talking about Sam. 
They were talking about the conversations they had had with him, the things that, they, that he had shared with them. And this is the man of God that we are fortunate enough to have as our pastor here. And this is the man we should support. By now, in my study of this passage, I'm thinking this woman's kind of cool now. And I'm getting excited to get to know her. I've come to understand that she is wise, she is discerning, she is alert to the needs of others, and she's quick to provide when she is able. Eventually, Elisha asks her what she wants, and when she says that she's content, he doesn't stop there. He wants to bless her. And he asks his servant, and his servant says, you know, she doesn't have a son. Let's give her a son. And so Elijah prophesies to this woman that she's going to have one. She's a little skeptical, woman after my own heart there. And it turns out she has a son. The son grows up. I don't know how old he is, but he's small enough to eventually um, be out in the fields with his father. He gets sick. He sends him back to his mother and he ends up dying on her lap. And here's what I learned about the Shunammite woman next. When he dies, she puts him in the um, prophet's room, in Elisha's room. And then she goes to her husband and says, hey, I've got to go see Elisha. And her husband says, what? It's not Sunday. It's not the Sabbath. I mean, it's not Bible study night. What's this all about? And all she says to him was, shalom, or it is well. And I've no idea why that's all she tells him, but that's all she tells him. My guess, and I like to think, it's because it was her faith that was propelling her to believe that all was going to be well and that she didn't need to waste any time boohooing and trying to figure out on her own what to do next. She is a woman of faith. She knew where to go to get counsel and help in her time of distress, and she was not going to waste any time seeking it. So often I look everywhere for help before I go to God. I'm so quick to plan and plot and connive and imagine, and this creates so much unnecessary anxiety in my life. I was reminded in this passage that I am to take my distress to God because he cares for me, and it is him that will make all things well. This is the kind of faith that the Shunammite woman had, and this is the kind of faith that I want to have. We pick up the passage in verse 25. It says, So she set out and came to the man of God in Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And to Gehazi she says, Shalom, all is well. But in verse 27, when she reaches the man of God, at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Do you wonder why she didn't tell Gehazi what was wrong? I did, until I was reminded that in two chapters, maybe it's just one chapter, chapter five, that Gehazi is going to prove to be a very dishonest and conniving servant. In fact, when Elisha has been used to heal Naaman, Naaman offers Elisha all kinds of material rewards, and Elisha refuses it. 
But after Naaman leaves, Gehazi goes running after him and connives and makes his story up so that he can get the material goods that Naaman had offered to Elijah and had refused. And I believe, um, <clears throat> and as a result of Gehazi's dishonesty and conniving and greed, God struck Gehazi and his descendants with leprosy, the very thing that Elijah had been used to cure Naaman of. That the Shunammite woman was able to discern that Gehazi was not a true servant of God and that he was pretending to be one forced her to reach for Elijah and the fact that she spoke to Elijah about the importance of discernment <clears throat> sorry spoke to my heart about the importance of discernment in who I listen to whose counsel I seek who I turn to in difficult times and who I know will prayerfully seek the Lord for wisdom in my behalf these are the things that should have been obvious to me and in theory they were but in practicality they, they were not they were to this ordinary Shunammite woman. She was not satisfied that Elijah sent Gehazi to her home with instructions how to take care of things. She insisted that this man of God go with her back to the house. And this speaks to me of perseverance in prayer, that kind of prayer when our heart aches so much we can't even articulate the words, we can't express our feelings, we don't even know what to cry out for. But it's that kind of prayer that perseveres until we get the answer from God. And it may not be the answer we want, but it will be an answer that is for our best. From this study of this passage, I was propelled to seek God more earnestly in prayer. I wanted to be gadal in discerning my choice of relationships and how I spend my time, to be gadal in the ways that I can bless those who minister to my needs, to recognize the voice of God and his call on my life, and then to respond in gadal ways. I still have a long way to go. It's definitely not easy for me to be still or to wait patiently. But I do know who I can turn to. I know who I can trust. I know who will pray for me. And I know who will answer my cry for help. I know who will say the hard things to me and then forgive me when I act ungraciously for what they have said to me in honesty. These are the people of God in my life, and I am thankful that God has been faithful to me in these people. I want to bless them however I am able to, and I want to seek God in their behalf. So the bottom line of this passage for me was that there is no dishonor in being ordinary. What we do in this life, if we are honest, is no big deal to God. His greatest, or the greatest and most heroic, generous, or extraordinary act is really still nothing but ordinary to God. In fact, to him, it is probably extraordinary. After all, we have a God who spoke the world into existence. So really, is there anything, any great thing that we can do in service? Not really. The world tries to define greatness for me, and there are too many times when I take the bait. But always I am reminded by the Holy Spirit of the Shunammite woman, and that God's word has taught me that Gadal, in his eyes, consists of service, discernment, and faith. Mother Teresa once said, in this life we cannot do great things. We can only do small things with great love. For me, this was the lesson of the Shunammite woman, and for me, it is the reason that my life has been forever changed by this passage. Amen.
Wow, Denise, thank you. I feel like I need to pay you some money now or something for that. <laughs> and I'm kind of horrified because I didn't know they were Harvard professors. <laughs> I probably would have <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I'm like, ah. <laughs> what do you guys think of this? <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open it to Joshua chapter 3. And as you're getting there, I want to, again, thank you, Denise, and reiterate what we've been saying throughout this series. It is our desire not to be your main course meal in your relationship with God, but to give you an incentive to be that appetizer that sparks the interest and desire that God wants for you to have to seek Him. We see how... The Lord uses the scripture to, to move the direction of our lives, how he brings a verse to mind, and, and we might be even just kind of mulling over it, thinking, oh, well, it's just an ordinary woman or whatever it might be, and then all of a sudden it, it is indeed alive and powerful and sharper than a, a two-edged sword that divides between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and it is able to then change the direction of our life. In the summer of 2004, I was at a worship conference. It was a three-day worship conference, and I actually was staying in Danny's trailer back then. We, we rented, or didn't rent it, we just borrowed it, and we parked it in the parking lot there, and my son was there working at the conference, and I was there, and we, we stayed there at the conference, and it was all-day conference, great speakers, incredible musicians, all the, the big names that were out there, and it was just kind of the, the Disneyland of worship leaders. I mean, it was one of those things where you just went there and like, oh, this is so blessed. And in one of the mornings, I was sitting out there, they had a morning devotion, and I went to Starbucks and I got my coffee, and I came back and it's like, yes, life is good. I, at the time, I was leading uh, the worship ministry at a church. I was an assisting pastor, and things were going well. Had a good group of people that were involved with the musicians there. We'd put our second CD together. Uh, things were busy. We had four adolescent children, so life was not perfect. Um, but things were going very well, and I felt very content and was enjoying the conference and listening to all the speakers, and then I went to this one morning devotion where Buddy Owens, who used to be one of the CEOs for Maranatha Music, was speaking, and he came to Joshua chapter 3. And Joshua chapter 3, as the story is going there, the children of Israel are about to go into the land of promise, into the Canaan land, and as they're getting ready to go, they have to cross the Jordan River. And Joshua hears from the Lord how they are supposed to cross the river. And Joshua tells the people, and starting at verse 5 in chapter 3, says, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, go and stand in the river. Now, the speaker, Buddy, who was talking on this, he was talking about how different this was than in Exodus, 
Remember when Moses is going and he's going to cross the Red Sea, the Egyptian army is following after them. They're panicking and Moses starts crying out to God and God says, why are you crying out to me? There's work to be done. Go over there and he goes to the Red Sea and he raises his staff and then the waters part and they walk across on dry land. Now that's the way you do it. Raise your staff, the waters part, and you get to walk on dry land, but not with Joshua. Tells Joshua, get them to go stand in the water. But God, that's not the way you do it. You're supposed to put the staff up. You put the staff up, and then the waters part, and then everyone goes in there. God says, no, this is how I want you to do it. So Joshua has the priests take the ark, and they go walking in the water. Now, I always do this. I always think, what would I think if I was one of the priests or one of the people watching? That's not how you do it. You're supposed to raise the staff thingy. I heard about that. The water is supposed to part. And it says that the waters stopped upriver, and it's quite a ways. It actually probably took a good hour before the water stopped where they were. So these priests are standing in the water for an hour, waiting for the waters to subside. What's going on in their minds for an hour while they're standing in the water? What's going on in Joshua's mind? <laughs> okay, they're in the water, God. Did just like you said. Okay, this is how I think. That's what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, show up, God. I kind of like the Moses way better but until they stepped in the water God didn't work and as this passage was being spoken about at that morning devotion I had this kind of divine push by God saying you need to get in the water God, I'm serving you. I'm already, you know, involved with ministry. I'm doing, look at all the great things I'm doing. I, I can list them to you, God. And I just felt this uneasy push, get in the water. You want to see me do amazing things, separate yourself and step into the water. And I remember just being so uneasy. What does that mean? I, I felt sure that God was speaking to me in this way, but step into the water where? Do what? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to start a church? Is that what you're saying? Am I, give me some more information. No, just step in the water. And at that time, I began to see that many times what happens with my life, and I think with our life, is we want to see God work, but we don't realize that we need to step into that work. We don't want to step. We want the water to part. We want there to be dry land. We want God to give us the signal. This is how it's going to be. Go for it. But he told Abraham, go to a land that I'll tell you later. I don't want the land that you'll tell me later. I want the land that you'll tell me now. 
I, I want the job that I can know what's going to be. I want the, the girlfriend, the boyfriend, the husband, the wife. I, I, want, I want to know the plan. I want to see the future. I want, you're God, you know the future. Tell it to me. And he says, step into the water. And what about faith ever made us think that it was secure, that it was safe? What about faith became this place of comfort? Faith is and has always been and will always be a place of dependency, trust, and stepping in to the water before we see the work take place. And so I went back to my pastor at that time and said, hey, had this kind of experience, don't know what it means, just throwing it out there for you, um, think I might supposed to be doing something and so I thought maybe I can start this college study but he said no I got someone else going to do that right now I said okay and so for about a year I just waited and actually I didn't just wait I kind of forgot kind of put it aside it's like well that was a neat experience but I sure don't know what it means But I didn't have this rest. And something was in me saying, you need to step into the water. You need to do something. It's not going to be the way it's been in your past. You need to do something new. And about a year later, there came this opportunity. And in 2005, I had a monumental year for me. I started that college ministry, the E3 back then. And it changed how I saw ministry. And from that point when I started that, I also went to to Wales and went and led a mission trip to Wales that changed how I saw ministry. And then in December of that year, I went to Bay St. Louis and we did a, a Christmas service for a week for those who had suffered from Hurricane Katrina. And it changed the way I saw ministry. And it was something that started just changing how I looked at things and started making me want to see things take place in my own life, in the life of those around me. And I felt more and more like I have to keep getting further and further in the water. And I remember telling Corrine, hey, I think I'm going to be starting this college ministry now. I know I'm already busy and not home a lot. So what do you think? Um, and she said, you know what? I was reading... And Joshua chapter 3, where the Lord told Joshua, consecrate yourself for tomorrow I'll do amazing things among you. I had never shared with her the scripture that it moved me. And all of a sudden she shared the scripture that had moved me. And I was like, wow, that's, that's powerful. That's neat. I felt now Secure, confirmed, okay, my faith has a little, I'm seeing some dry land here, I'm seeing the waters part, okay. And so we stepped in and started getting involved, but it wasn't the end, it was actually just the beginning. A few years later, there was an opportunity to go look at a church in Napa, and again, leave what I was doing. I enjoyed this college ministry, I was liking the, the music, but I just was not content. I felt like I had to do more. And so I said, well, I, I think I'm going to go look at this ministry. And as I was thinking and, and desiring to do this, I read this in 1 Kings chapter 19. You can turn there. 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 19. So Elijah, hey, went from there and found Elijah, son of Shaphat, 
he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went to him and threw his cloak around him. Thinking, what the heck is that? That means I want you to be my follower. That was kind of the symbol of what that is. It wasn't a Batman thing or something. Anyway, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? I love that reply. He seems like such a nice guy. So Elijah left him and went back. This is what captured my attention. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. As I read that, I felt again God was saying, you need to get rid of what you're tied to, and you need to step out into what is new. Again, kind of stepping into the water and that whole Joshua 3.5 thing and that whole passage in Joshua was just moving me and pushing me and pushing me. And then I read this as this opportunity came and I said, I think I got to go for it. And I was talking again to Corrine and I was saying, hey, you know, I was just thinking, you know, Bill had talked about maybe this church up in St. Helena about maybe taking that step and going out in that way. And then she said that she was going through her daily reading, her one-year Bible, and she went through this passage in First Kings. She goes, you know what, I read this passage, and it struck me, and it was the exact passage that moved me. And once again, you know, God is telling me to step into the water, but he gives me a little insight because he knows me. <laughs> Really, God? The water's cold. I don't know. And when I heard her say that, I said, well, this is what we got to do. And I, I, I tell you this because if I didn't hear this passage and my wife didn't hear this passage, what transpired next was just very difficult. We found our, ourselves without work. Still had my family, my home, my kids. I no longer had a, a place of employment. And everything inside me was saying, this is a mistake. This isn't right. This is got to be wrong. And it was this passage, these passages, that brought me to the place that said, no, I heard you speak to me. And you moved me and you confirmed it with my wife, who's a part of me, that this is what I need to do. And a reminding of myself that what about faith sounds easy to you, Sam? What about following God sounds like it's smooth sailing? I think of Daniel and chapter 4 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we know them, uh, are told to bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar raised to make in his own image so that they would worship the, the idol that was to worship him. And they said, we won't do it. And so they made the fire, and they're going to go throw them into the fire. And it says the fire is so hot that it consumed those that were going to throw them in. And as they're going, he says, you guys need to bow down and worship the image, or you're going in the fire. And they said, oh, king. And they're very gracious as they talk to King and said, you know what? God who is above can save us from the fire. 
or not. <laughs> but we will not bow down and worship the idol. And I love that because they have faith in God, but it isn't contingent on whether they will be saved. There is the or not. And let's face it, in life, there's a lot of or nots. There's Natalie in the hospital with leukemia. You can fill in the own blanks of the things that have been difficult. There's nothing about this life that is made to be easy. But we can know that God is with us. And whether I, I'm delivered through the fire or not, I will not bow to your idol. I will follow after you and the things that you say. And I've got to tell you, that period of time, those few years later, were the most difficult times in my life. And you would think, if God is leading me, shouldn't things be getting easier? Come on, God, it must be a mistake. Why is it so hard? If you're the one leading me. See, sometimes you have to trust and you have to step in the water and you have to break up the plow and you have to get rid of those ties that are holding you back and you have to say, okay, God, I am going to follow after you even though it's risky. And if you want to see Amazing things happen in your life. Set yourself apart. That's what the word consecrate means. Listen to what God says. And he might be telling you, step into the water. God, I want to see you work. Step into the water. Lord, I need to know what direction I should go. Step into the water. And you might be here this morning saying, what should I do? Where should I step in the water? Hey, that's my question. I can't tell you. But I know that if you are postured towards God and you are leaning towards him and you're desiring to step in, separate yourself for him, he will do amazing things among you. That's who he is. That's what he does. There's nothing about this life that is easy. Faith and risk. But we risk by leaning on the one we believe in, the one who is faithful, the one who does separate the waters. And you know the story of Elijah. He went on followed after Elijah, did twice as much as him. But he had to break up the plow. He had to bring the sacrifice. And there is no serving God without sacrifice. What should I sacrifice? I don't know. But step in the water. And I believe God spoke to me that I needed to lean into that place of being uncomfortable, trust him, and allow him to do what he does best the miraculous. Let's pray.
God, sometimes I ask myself, how does my believing in you show up in my life? How, how is it making a difference? If I really am following after you, where is the evidence? And God, I ask that over and over again. And, and through these passages, it has continually been a, a guiding post for my life to see if I am trusting you enough to, to take that step, see if I'm willing to get my feet wet, see if I'm willing to, to risk ridicule, if I'm willing to be truly dependent on you. And God, I believe there is even more amazing things you want to do among us. And the only thing stopping you from doing those amazing things is your people not willing to step into the water. God, I don't want to be that way. Lord, I don't think anyone here does. And so I pray that what happened to me those years ago through this passage would be a seed in the hearts of some here this morning that would start to be that divine push, that their lives wouldn't be content until they stepped in whatever direction you might be moving them in. But we wouldn't be content to sit on the shore. We wouldn't want to wait for the waters to part and there be dry land. We would be willing to, in faith, follow your words, step into the water, set ourselves aside for you and see you do amazing things among us. God, may you continue to push. May you continue to open our eyes. May you continue to give us understanding that the life following after you is a life of faith. And there's nothing easy about faith. But we have faith in you, the living, true God, who loves us enough to give your son for us. God, if you gave him, will you withhold anything good from us? Certainly not. May we trust you wherever you lead, even if it's into fire. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.